Hello, everybody. I'm Jeff Wilkinson, and welcome to our very first episode of All Things Quality, uh, a podcast that talks about quality and disruptive technology and anything in between. Uh, I'm Jeff Wilkinson, as I said. I recently retired from uh, 30 years at Accenture, where I was the global lead for the Accenture testing uh, practice, which we call Accenture Quality Engineering Services. I also led uh, the Accenture office in Indianapolis. And with me today is uh, our very fine, my very fine friend, CEO of Digi4, Prasar Saha. And uh, Prasar, you want to say anything before we get started? So um, I I want to mention that you know I'm really honored to be in this podcast like with you like uh, and um, I I think like we couldn't have a better guest than like you know Conroy to start with. I'm looking forward to this uh, podcast. Conroy is uh, the director of development for digital applications at uh, Air Canada. Uh, as a consumer of Air Canada, many times I have used his product and uh, love it. Um, I can also say that our focus today is going to be on uh, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, uh, generative AI and other types of AI uh, and the quality aspects that surround that. And Conroy is a, a leader in the industry focusing on that with Air Canada. So Conroy, what else can you tell us about yourself? Thanks for that, Jeff. And uh, thanks, Parasar, for that intro as well. Um, I have over 30 years, I would say, in quality assurance. Um, and uh, recently, I've taken over the role, uh, a few years now, a couple of years now, the role of uh, a development uh, lead at Air Canada for the digital application. So I do inform a lot of what I do from a digital development perspective with a quality background that I had. And um, I, I do also want to say, you know, uh, Parsar worked with me in the past. And one of the things that we really, you know, focused on is how we can, you know, move quality from being sort of a gate uh, keeper function to an enabler function. And I think um, that is one of the key things that, you know, I think, you know, as quality professionals, we want to bring into that role. How do we use the quality function, the quality organization, the quality team to get the, the requirements, get the needs of the business out the door as quickly as possible. And that is something that I certainly do call upon in my role as a development leader at Air Canada. Yeah, I, I, the fact that you are using uh, AI uh, in sort of this manner, it's, uh, it's, it's a, uh, a foresight of what we're seeing in the industry right now and the quality uh, aspects that are around that. You're going to be sort of a guinea pig, uh, a, a canary in the, in the coal mine, so to speak. But let's start simple here and talk about what is it exactly that you're using AI for, I know revenue management and predictability and that sort of thing. Can you give us an, an idea of, you know, why you're using AI and how you're using it? And, and then we can go into some some of the quality aspects after that. Yeah, so prior to the generative AI um, explosion, let's call it that, um, certainly companies like Air Canada spend quite a bit of time developing uh, AI technologies. Um, you know, um, you know, one way of thinking about it is, you know, a company like an airline, we have a lot of data have a lot of data in terms of or you know uh, passengers routes uh fares um you know what works what does not work and then you need to look at um, parsing that data and coming up with solutions for the customers that work when you think of the way a, a traditional airline works um prior to the pandemic we really had two major planning seasons we had the winter season where we planned for the summer and then we had the summer season where we planned for the winter and as the pandemic has disrupted that entire flow, now you need to look at more of a continuous planning aspect. And these are some of the areas where AI certainly helps with our, our, our planning in terms of our fleet, in terms of our prices, in terms of our destination. You know, um, when you look at how an airline operates, you're balancing things like um, fuel, which, which is a very expensive 
uh, costs. You're balancing the different um, you know, routes that you fly through. It might be a cost to fly over Canada versus a different cost to fly over the U.S., but it might be a longer route through the U.S. Um, so you have to balance all these different variables, and AI is very well suited for that type of uh, activity. Well, you, you mentioned data, uh, and you know, data requires um, uh, large uh, language modeling and all kinds of things with, with huge data lakes required and data ingestion and making sure the data you have is correct. How do you ensure the data that you're ingesting for your AI models is working correctly? Yeah, and that's a great point. So, you know, one of the things that we did at, at Air Canada are we're still in the, the massive journey of re-architecting our entire data infrastructure. Um, so that in call, in, involves, as you mentioned, uh, migrating data from systems, moving into more of a data lake type architecture, separating operational data from data that you use for analyzing situations. So there's a whole bunch of aspects to that whole data management uh, pipeline that goes into making sure you know you have you know the right data, you have accurate data, and um, you know the, the quality of the data is good enough so that you're getting um, valuable insights out of the AI. AI models. Is there anything that you do to ensure that the data that you're ingesting is not biased in some way? Um, so in terms of the data being biased in some way for for our our scenarios or our use cases, there's less of that um, that 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 impact, let's say, um, because the data that we're looking at is mostly around our passengers and the journeys and the the, the, the cost of fuel or the weather and that sort of stuff. So for us, it's less of an issue than some of, some other businesses that might be more reliant on external data that's out there that might be biased. Or data, I would say, is a lot more targeted to the type of activities that we do. That said, um, you know, we have an entire organization that's sort of dedicated to, you know, managing, maintaining, architecting, and solving the data challenges that we have. And those organizations sort of feed into uh, there are sort of inputs into the type of work that I do to make sure that you know that data is is used to present an experience for our customers or an experience for our um, or or employees to make that journey as as um, effective as possible for the customer. So okay. I'm more on the application side of things, and I ingest that data from the teams that maintain that. Got it. Okay. Good. Well, so for the quality engineers that are on this podcast. Give us an idea of how you go about testing your the content that you created through the AI process. Yeah, so um, that that is a challenge. So I remember when we just started looking at um, the AI team. So I started here kind of five years ago, mm -hmm. and around the same time we started seriously investing in AI. And I certainly had quite a few conversations with uh, various of our you know support uh, teams, such as Accenture and uh, Hexaware and a few others, to say how do you actually test for AI, right? Uh, you know, you know, when you start testing um, the the AI models, for example, it almost as if that test, those experiences that you have from testing become part of the data that it's the system is learning from as well. So um, testing, testing AI, as you said, is certainly a challenging aspect. And the key aspects that we focused on when we were looking at it was clearly around the requirements, clear around the end expectations of the systems or the customers. And that's sort of the aspect that we focus on. Are we getting the expectations that are business, um, uh, uh, business uh, you know, stakeholders or end customers are expecting? So that's sort of the lens that we use to look at the, the type of testing that we did. Mm, okay. 
Well, you know, interestingly, yesterday, your code share partner in the U.S., United, you may know where I'm going with this, right, <laughs> had a major outage. And the outage was because they proliferated software uh, across the network, and it was apparently not tested well enough because it slowed everything down. And they had to delay flights, they had to cancel some flights, and they had to redo that uh, proliferation of software. Is there something that you and your organization would have done differently to avoid that kind of a, what was really a bad day for United Airlines? Yeah, so what I can say is I can't speak to the United specific scenario because I, I don't know the details of what created that issue. So one of the things I strongly believe in in a quality organization is um, postmortems or, or retrospectives, right? So um, you're going to experience many different types of uh, issues or failures. And I think having a robust uh, sort of postmortem exercise or retro exercise to understand what those failures are, there's really two aspects to it. There's a short-term immediate fix that you need to do. And then there's a longer term strategy about what, what actually caused that failure to happen in the first place. And then based on that, you can start adjusting your practice to make sure you cover those. So those are, you know, so those are some generalities. Um, again, being unable to speak to specifically what happened at United. I can say that um, in an environment um, as complex as what we have in the airlines, um, you do um, experience um, uh, issues in production that are relatively you know, difficult to capture in, in your internal test environments. So the concept of shifting right to be able to test in production to be able to test um, various different loads, to be able to, to test various different scenarios, I think has been one of the, um, the, the challenges that I've seen in this uh, industry. Um, and some of these failures that you see, generally speaking, in a production type environment, um, you know, for the airlines are generally related to um, various and, you know, production type uh, scenarios that are sometimes difficult to recreate in a test environment. Professor, I see you had your hand raised. Do you want to interject here? Yeah, so I think like, you know, there's there's a couple of like, you know, key things that you mentioned, right? You know, uh, and first of all, I like the fact that, you know, you, you are in dev, but you still have that QA hat uh, on you. Like, you know, I can see that passion still. So one of the things that you kind of like, you know, highlighted is the data piece, right? Uh, so there's a business data and there is this software data, the lifecycle data, right? Uh, how do you see that like you know how do you see like you know your organization retaining that data and contributing to a predictability of your life cycle of the software yeah if, if i understand what you're talking about i I, th I think there's a there's a couple of points right so in terms of the operational data so this is data about um you know you know how many uh users are using the system at a certain point in time maybe you have a seed sale happening maybe there's many you know, customers logging in, trying to purchase something. Maybe you have a backend environment that is not static, but designed to scale. So there's 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 a number of different levers that you might need to adjust in order to 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 ensure that the system is not failing when you get an excess of users on it. So I'm I'm not sure that in this case it's it's a question of um, not having enough data to test with, I think it may, may be a case of um, creating the right um, loading parameters, right? The right stressing parameters. Um, 
in these type of production um, uh, test scenarios, you might have edge cases that you encountered internally that might seem you know, to be like a low priority scenario, but that edge case becomes a massive failure, you know, depending on what the, your load looks like. So um, to your point, your operational data that you have in the system will help you identify the different um, scenarios and, and the way to test those different scenarios, but often the failures that you see in production, like, like you know, I would imagine are related to the different, you know, aspect of the system that's actually being stressed. I agree with the processor. Yes. Uh, if every uh, development lead spent, had spent time in testing, we'd see a whole lot fewer quality problems than we do today. So it's good that you have that perspective. Prosser, any other questions or any follow-ups on that? I think I think I, I get your perspective. Now, like, uh, thanks, Conrad, for yeah. you. So yeah. uh, I, I want to kind of switch a little bit to, um, you know, we know that there are tremendous benefits from AI. Uh, with any disruptive technology, the reason why it's disruptive is because it's beneficial. It creates something really good, like the internet back in 1991 uh, created something that was just completely disrupted technology and disrupted communications. But there's potential for badness, right? People use the internet for crime and for um for, for all kinds of, of, of malfeasance um do you anticipate or do you see anything uh from your usage of ai that could be a negative for air canada or for the technology industry in general kind of anything that anything you've seen yeah so i i think i think we can take a look at um the large language model uh ai systems that are prevalent right now when taking the world a little bit by storm and um, you know, one of the things uh, about these systems are is just with any AI system, really, is the data that you train the system with. Um, you know, I looked at uh, you know Bing, Bing, um, the Bing chat when it came out initially. That's based on the open open AI system or models. And when it was initially launched, there are several problems with that tool. But the key the key difference between that tool at the time and what was happening with um, ChatGPT was that tool was using fresh data from the internet. And basically what users were encountering was a system that was learning all the, the positives and negatives that are actually on the internet right now and basically replaying it back. So in a way, it's really a reflection or was a reflection of what was happening on the internet, a reflection of the experiences that we as users were experiencing on the internet all the good and all the bad. So again, the AI system is only as good as the data that you fed it. Now, once you start curating that data, then the system starts changing. And as the system starts changing, then you, you sort of limit some of the, 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 the capabilities of the system and limit some of the ability as the system to reflect, you know, um, the way society is or to behave like, a, like an actual human. But at the same time, by restricting it to a certain extent, you make it a, a lot more, a lot safer for um, different individuals to 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 access. So to answer your question directly, there's a lot of harm, or that that a, an AI system can can create, um, both in the perpetration, or the, you know, the the continuation of certain negatives that are in society. There's harm in that sense, and there's also harm in the sense that as people come to rely on these systems, they they tend to, um, you know tend to um, overlook, for lack of a better way of saying, the negatives that's inherent in some of these type of applications. 
So, you know, Conroy, with ChatGPT and other artificial intelligence um, uh, elements that, that exist out there, we see tremendous usage of it, right? It can uh, take some of the mundane out of the people's hands and allow them to, to do what they need to do, and then they can just review it and, it, uh, and then you know, make sure that it's correct. But some people use ChatGPT for bad things, right? They use it for, to create defects, or they use it to write their term paper and pass it off to the professor as their own work. Uh, is there anything, and by the way, uh, anytime you have a disruptive technology, it, uh, it, it creates a lag in uh, regulations in terms of policing uh, that technology. The internet's a good example. It took years and years before the, the regulations caught up globally with what we had with the internet. For intelligent, artificial intelligence, do you see anything in, uh, in Parliament in Canada? I should mention you guys are both in Toronto. I'm in Indianapolis in the U.S., the U.S. Congress, the European Union. Anything you see in regulation bodies that are focused on um, regulating artificial intelligence to make sure that it can't be used for bad things? Yeah, so, so first I have to state that I'm not an expert on the legal aspect of things, but what I can say is that um, certainly as with, with most new technologies, regulations tend to be a bit behind. Um, However, uh, and there's a lot of buzz, a lot of conversations about, you know, um, what will government do and government um, is getting involved and working on different types of um, means of mitigating some of these things. But the, the expectation generally is that it will be behind. However, in, in my industry, in, in the aviation industry, we're federally regulated. Um, and we certainly have to make sure that whatever technologies that we roll out meet certain conditions, right? And even if you think of, um, you know, we, we are uh, governed under the, the European regulations as well as far as data and data privacy are concerned. So um, even though there's no specific regulation around AI at this point in time, um, it's, it's incumbent on us to ensure that we're, um, you know, guarding the, the data, um, guarding um, the usability, uh, guarding um, the, the experience of our customers and as well as our, our, our employees as well, given that this is such a disruptive technology. But in terms of any sort of regulation that's on the horizon, I'm not privy to anything that's anywhere near to being implemented. There's a lot we don't know, right? And yeah. it's going to be interesting to see 10 years from now, maybe two years from now, where we stand in terms of regulation, in terms of continued evolution of AI. Um, one uh, thing that I'm seeing in, in, the, uh, in the, the press around usage of AI is the potential to eliminate jobs, right? That AI, we said you saw this back when I was growing up, you saw, oh, automation and robots is going to take people's jobs. And of course, it actually created more jobs and stuff like that. Do you see any relevance to AI uh, cause, you know, taking people's jobs? Um. That, that's a that's a great question, right? So you know, just looking at the impact, uh, you know, we have started um, um, you know rolling out um, you know copilot technologies or ML, you know large language models um, in our development teams. Right now, we're focusing on um, yeah, copilot, right? Um, from from um, GitHub. Um, however, and we're also looking at, uh, you know, technologies from Amazon and we're looking at technologies um, with Microsoft as well. Um, we have enabled a couple of teams, a couple of pods within our with our team to use this technology. And we're already seeing, you know, greater than 2x uh, improvement in, in, in velocity, right? Uh, we're also seeing 
improvement in quality to the points of you know something like 67% less defects right in a, in, a, in, a, in a given sprint. So there's a couple of ways to interpret that. You know, once we when we initially started talking about um, having the teams uh, use this technology, there are certain developers that are really excited to get started on it. But at the same time, there are other developers that were a bit concerned about two factors. Factor number one is what does that do to our jobs? And factor number two is what does that do to our skill set? Does that sort of dumb down our skill sets if we're starting to rely on this technology more and more? Um, now, in terms of the aspect of what does it do to our jobs, fortunately, in our case, we have a huge backlog of work that we have to get done. And from year to year, it's more that we're delaying activities that we want to get at. So from our perspective, we're saying, hey, we're able to do a lot of those things that are sitting on the backlog that will benefit the business that we had to push off. So from our perspective right now, we're seeing the ability to get things done. We're not looking or seeing an impact in terms of the number of people at this point in time. In terms of the second aspect, which is around, hey, we're starting to dumb down our skill set. What we're finding is that the tool is literally working as, as, as I mentioned, as a co-pilot. It's literally working as an assistant, you know, basically sitting on your lap that you're working with to get things done. Um, that is the experience, that is the feedback that we're getting right now. So we're very careful in how we roll this out in the sense that one, we're actually measuring the velocity, we're actually measuring the quality, but we're constantly measuring the user sentiment in terms of how is this tool actually making your day-to-day -day life. One of the big things that developers has mentioned is that it, it actually enhances flow, right? So as a developer, you want to be in that zone and the sense is that the tool is actually enhancing and enabling the developer to remain in that flow zone uh, longer. And the other thing that we're seeing is it's sort of leveling the playing field a little bit where junior developers can start feeling are producing a little bit more um, higher quality work faster. And mm -hmm. we still have senior developers that are saying, you know what, I'm still faster than this tool, I'm still better than this tool, it's really not adding any value to my productivity. So we're having these blend of blend of uh, reactions and overall we're getting better quality and better performance in each of these uh, in each of these pods. It makes sense. I think that the short answer that I would, would go with is um, you need to have people reviewing what the chat GPT or whatever the AI is, uh, what it's producing. And I, I have an analogy I'll, I'll give to you that I really like. I love my yard. I've got a beautiful suburban yard here in Indiana. Um, and I do all the artistic uh, strategic stuff to the yard, the pruning, the shaping, the planting, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I don't do the tactical stuff. I don't mow it. Uh, I, did, I did a lot of mowing on my lawn, lawn when I was a kid, right? I'm done with that. Someone else mows it, does the tactical stuff. I'll do the strategic stuff. ChatGPT or AI or whatever you're talking about can do the, the tactical stuff. And then it, it falls upon the human being to come in and provide the strategy around it and the vision and really make it sizzle. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, that, that's exactly. I see Parasar has, has a stand up, but I, I will just piggyback on that before I jump to, jump to Parasar. So, um, you know, when we look at how a developer actually uses a tool, there are different components to, to the, the various tools. But, you know, for example, I'm a developer and I start writing a line of code and the tool says, hey, here are three options for how you want to complete that, that, that line. Um, as a developer, you scan that and then you select a line and then um, you go in afterwards and you tweak it to make it meet whatever requirements that you have. 
that code still gets put back in the pipeline and it still gets reviewed by a, by a, um, by a developer. So we we're thinking one of the reasons why we're seeing improved quality is almost as if you have, to your point, an assistant that completes that line for you or that function for you, you end up reviewing it and tweaking it before it actually goes for peer review, right? So it's almost as if there's an extra uh, layer of review in there um, that the developer is actually able to do. And that's why we think we're getting a, a little bit better quality to your point. Yeah, I think like, you know, very interesting uh, points that you actually mentioned, like, you know, as I was listening, right, you know, I'm hearing a lot of times we are mentioning the review, right? Okay, now that we are relying on technology to create some of these things, right, you know, the chat GPT to create some of the code, doesn't like the review process takes a much more importance that it has done in past. So what's your thought about it, Connor? Yeah, so so in terms of, as I mentioned, there's a, there's a, there, there's two, main ways of working with the tool. So one is as an inline complete tool, but the other approach is similar to how you use ChatGPT, where you prompt the tool and you can write a whole function for you or a whole, whole module or an entire application almost for you, right? In that mode, um, which is even more um, performant, right? In terms of velocity, in that mode, we are expecting that um, a couple of things will happen. So one, depending on the developer, um, a developer might tend to rely on the tool a little bit more because it's now written the whole function for you rather than inline complete. Um, so we're we're expecting that when that code goes over to the actual peer review, we're expecting to see potentially more comments, um, more feedback on the peer re review side, more stress on the peer review side. So while we've completed completed that initial um, uh, you know, deployment and testing and experimentation and proof of value um, and even productizing the 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 um, the inline complete uh, portion of it, the autocomplete, let's call it like, a, you know, an enhanced autocomplete function. And we're relatively um, comfortable with the results we're getting there. Right now, we're focusing a bit more on that um, whole chat component when you prompt the tool and it writes a whole, a whole uh, you know, function for you, let's say. And now we're starting to analyze, collect the data to analyze what um, using um, this thing will do from a quality perspective, how it will impact the review process, and we're coming up with different ways to, to, to test that, right? So what's the number of comments that are there? How often does it go back and forth with an individual developer, for example? Um, so those are some of the things, what the quality looks like coming out of that system. So those are that's the actual phase that we're in right now in the actual implementation. So maybe in a month from now, we should be able to answer that question um, a, lot, a lot better than I can right now. Okay, so you do see that, like, you know, a, a lot of load coming down the pipeline, right? If the, like, you know, development and more code being churned out, right? So a lot of testing uh, effort being kind of more added to this pipeline, right? Is that so? Yeah, so that's another that's another factor as well. So, yeah. Sorry. So as I mentioned, we started with the development team. Yeah. Right? And we knew right off the bat that what would happen is that we're going to hit bottlenecks and test. We're going to hit bottlenecks from a um, a story creation perspective. Essentially, the developers have run out of work to do, right? And that's where. And so we were very careful in how we rolled this out. We didn't roll it across the multiple pods that we had. We actually limited it to two pods, so we can understand that. Now, in parallel to what we've learned at the dev, we're starting to work with QA to see how generative AI can accelerate the QA portion of the pipeline. And we're also working or starting to work with a product ownership side of things, a requirements generation side of things, 
to see if how generative AI can accelerate that part of the pipeline as well. We know right now with just the two pods that we've had, we've been able to consume all the stretch goal, stretch stories that have been created. And now we're at the point where the QA guys are, are, are struggling. They're literally a bottleneck because dev has done so much work because of this tool being enabled. So to your point, um, there's a lot of factors to think about as you start rolling this tool into your actual production environment. Right. I think like, you know, that would be a quick thing. Like, you know, I want to ask both of you, like, you know, uh, we have been doing this catch up game, right? We we think about the dev, right? And then we kind of like come down. What should we do about the like, testing part of it, right? Um, I wish there was Copilot thought about out of the QA as well, right? You know, we had a QA version of the Copilot. So what would be like you guys kind of like, you know, I want to hear from both of you, like, you know, your thought for the industry, like, you know, how do we stop this catch up game? When we are thinking about building a tool, how do we kind of like, you know, think about building it together, right? What would be your message to the industry for that? So, so, so that's a great question, right? So if I were still in QA, I would have expected that the minute that this technology was out, I would have been all over it, right? So, you know, I had a conversation, I think it was yesterday, where we talked about, you know, what's what's one of the learnings that you took away from your past experience? And I would say, you know, um, during my career QA career, um, after having quite a bit of experience in QA, um, going into a new company, um, establishing some great practices, you know, being able to see the result of all that work, I sort of coasted for a little bit and it took, um, you know, so a new perspective, a new leader that came into the organization for me to sort of wake up and say, wait a second, you know, a few years have passed and the industry has completely turned around. So I right then and there, I think what I took away was you, you can never rest on your laurels and you have to always be looking at the industry to see what the latest and greatest is from a technology perspective, from a process perspective, to ensure that you're always um, evolving and always getting better and better. So to answer your question, Parasar, yes, that's the lens that I took into the development side, which is why we're accelerating in development. But that same lens needs to be in QA constantly, right? So the QA team should also be all over a new technology like generative AI. There's so much that we can do in QA with generative AI, and there's so much that we can do in QA with technologies as a whole to keep that uh, testing approach as fresh and as as efficient as possible. One of the reasons why I think um, you know my approach to QA has been the way it is is because some of those companies that I worked in had a mandate such as we need to do we need to do each year we need to do thirty percent more than what we did before. So that forces us to innovate constantly, right? And I think. Um, to answer your question about how does QA stay uh, up to date, how does QA get out of the waiting game, how does QA catch up, I think it's it's actually more than how does QA catch up. It's how does QA surpass, right? So QA should be operating, I think, way more efficient than development is because QA should shift left through development and left again through requirement. And the only way that can happen is if your QA team is extremely efficient. And extremely lean and extremely innovative. I love that answer. I'm going to come yeah. at it from the lens of a consulting company, right? Where uh, not not the final consumer, but a consulting company. Because as a consultant, you have to be ahead of the market, right? You have to know the new technologies that are out there, and you have to have already thought about 
uh, how are you going to man manage those technologies? So for artificial intelligence, uh, Accenture got into the game. We actually made an acquisition uh, company that uh, we, we incorporated into our touches testing platform. It does predictive analytics using artificial intelligence. We also created a concept uh, we called teach and test, where we actually we, it actually teaches an artificial intelligence engine how to ingest data that's non-biased and then uses that. It's actually, you know, does testing of artificial intelligence. So, um, so, but I, I would say that we are very much in a discovery, we, meaning the entire industry, is very much in a discovery period right now because we're not at all sure what's going to work, right? ChatGPT is a brand new technology. There's more that's, that's coming uh, alongside ChatGPT the generative AI, there's other kinds of AI that we have to be aware of. Um, and, and there's no definitive answers, right? If you went out there and asked any particular consulting company or any industry company for that matter, what are the right answers and how do you do testing and, and how do you use artificial intelligence to be the most effective at testing? There's no right answer. Uh, maybe in five years there will be, uh, but right now there's not. Uh, which leads me to kind of another, hopefully I can answer your question, Professor, but, but the next question is, you know, GBT and, and AI is sort of the, the it's, technology of the moment, right? It's the disruptive technology right now. What do we see, always trying to look in the future, right? What do we see is the next disruptive technology that you and I in the testing and the development space are really gonna have to pay attention to? Absolutely, like, you know, I love your answers, like, you know, and, you know, I keep thinking of myself as like, you know, I have sit around the four corners of the table, right? You know, being a consultant, being a part of the, like, you know, driving a QA organization, then also running a, a kind of company, like, you know, um, I keep thinking like, you know, this, that should we just think about dev and QA as an engineering aspect? Like, you know, if you leave the hat separately and think about uh, you are actually solving an engineering problem, right? And if you think of that way, there is always you will be thinking about how do I develop? How do I test? Right? So you think jointly on that. I think like, you know, what I'm looking forward from the industry is like, you know, when these big companies, right, you know, when Microsoft or like, you know, any other company is bringing up a disruptive technology, they take that engineering approach of thinking dev and QA and the things together, rather than thinking about, I'm just creating a co-pilot for the dev. So create a no, co-pilot for the engineering. I think that's that's amazing, Parasar. I think um, if you're not looking at it holistically, um, then you'll have exactly the problems that I'm talking about right now, which is bottlenecks all over the place, right? So we talk about optimizing a part as opposed to the whole. So what do you think is the next big disruptive technology? In terms of disruptive technologies um, right now, my view is that we haven't seen the real impact of um, um, these large language models yet, this generated AI yet, right? I think we're at the phase where, you know, the internet started and and no one could have envisioned all the different industries and and and, and challenges that um, the internet has created. If you went back several, you know, now a couple of decades ago, now you, you no one could have imagined how um, the internet has changed things. I think we're, we're to your point. We're just at the very beginning of generative AI right now, and the disruption that the the, the secondary and tertiary outputs of generative AI are going to create that disruption is going to be even bigger than what we're seeing right now is my thinking. Now, outside of generative AI, the other thing that's sort of under horizon or been under horizon for a little bit has been quantum. Now, you know, if when quantum becomes real and affordable, that's going to be a whole 
other level of disruption, given how that will be able to handle you know, data, a large amount of data, the, the speed at which the system operates, um, that is going to be massively disruptive on a large scale as well. And it will supercharge um, the whole uh, AI process as well. So that is going to be a massive um, um, game changer, I believe, as well. And you know, a little bit further up probably, but that's going to be a massive game changer. Um, you know, there are other technologies that that have been, you know, nascent for a while. You know, we we talk about you know biometrics, and we talked about, um, you know, you know, you know, you know, we had a conversation Jeff before about AR, etc. You know, so these these technologies are out there, but they have not yet been as, um, you know, disruptive as we thought they would have been by now. Um, there's there's no doubt that the potential for, for serious disruption with these technologies is still there, um, but they haven't panned out as quickly as we expected them to. But you start coupling something like uh, biometrics and AI together, AI like we have it now, and the, the impact is, again, in, you know, tremendous. And then you start using, you know, AR to the, the conversation we've had before, and things like training and all that sort of stuff, where you can literally have generative AI on top of it, directing what's going on with, in terms of what you're seeing. Um, for example, in gaming, that that's that, that's going to be quite disruptive already. But you start looking at something like that in a training environment. You know, if we're talking about training pilots for different scenarios, um, certainly AR um, with the support of AI on top of that is going to be impactful. Imagine Dungeons and Dragons with uh, an Oculus and using AI, right? That's a whole different type of gaming right there. You know, I'm shocked that augmented reality hasn't made uh, more of a um, uh, uh, more traction in the industry, but I'm also shocked that electronic vehicles have not gained more traction either. They're having it at the moment, and we'll see how far they go. Uh, infrastructure is an issue, but um, um, I, I totally agree with your, your answers on that. Professor, I'm going to ask my final question here, unless you have some additional questions you wanted to ask. So I think we're going to have very interesting, like, you know, topics that we are talking about, like, you know, um, how do you see cloud playing a role in this whole game? Like, you know, the stuff, right? Cloud is the backbone, uh, but there is a lot of hesitant of going to the adopting cloud in different companies and stuff. How do you see that impacting the adoption of this AI or any other technology which is dependent on cloud? I, I almost feel like Cloud is 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 a you know, it's a done deal, right? So I mean, if, if people aren't looking at the cloud right now, they they likely will be for for most things. Um, so that I think is 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 fully in play and will continue to accelerate. Um, where it starts to become interesting is now when you're potentially fully dependent on cloud, and then your loads start to change, and then your pricing starts changing. And I think now is when you start getting to things like, you know, DevSec thin ops, where you need to start managing the cost of your cloud because you move so much to the cloud. And mm -hmm. it just it just it just begs for you to move more and it just just consumes everything you do. So I think I think in the cloud space, it's less a question of are we gonna go to the cloud? It's more a question of how are we gonna start managing the cloud costs, right? Even test par, sorry, when we started looking at moving a lot of our tests into you know various different cloud systems and and um simulators emulators whatever you're gonna call it um you know we start very quickly seeing costs ramp up yes we get massive coverage in a relatively short time but now you have to start thinking about the cost so 
that I think is going to be a, a key approach to 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 cloud. How you manage um, the actual cost going forward? Yeah, we can have a whole, whole separate section on cloud because it's a, it's a massive topic. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, so. I think like you know, as a like you know, entrepreneur, like you know, we kind of going in the route of developing cloud. So how do I how do we make as like you know uh, how companies make cloud more adaptable for the enterprises? Like any any suggestions for that? Um, I can, I can speak for our organization in the sense that you know we're we're fully on board with with cloud. I think it's it's, it's a question of you know making sure that the, your your security is good and the data is being regulated and all that sort of stuff. But really, I I'm not aware of any challenges right now to or any or a lot of hesitancy um, to adopting cloud. You basically just you know I think you really just got to get on board unless there's super sensitive material. That you need to um, to 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 not have in the cloud, and even then, um, you have on-prem and hybrid um, versions of that at this point in time. So, um, I think I think you have your choice of how you move to the cloud. But I, I, you know, I can't imagine that there there are many organizations that are not looking at this right now. Thank you. All right. Okay. Well, I always like to end our podcast with a very fun, very simple question. What is your favorite technology experience in your career? My favorite technology experience in my career. Um, favorite or fun? It can be uh, fun. Yeah. What's that? It can be fun, favorite, just interesting. Mm. Or interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I would have said, you know, it was um, that that recognition well, generally speaking, I enjoy new technologies. Right? I enjoy seeing um, a new technology being um, identified, adopted, and implemented, and then seeing the results of that at the end of the day. Um, you know, there's there's so much that we can do, whether it's QA or whether it's development or whether it's you know looking at the entire pipeline, and you know, seeing that new like right like right now the whole concept of generative ai is very exciting to me like when we had that uh, group of developers that we've prototyped this with we piloted this with, and we saw the results and then we were able to go to a broader audience and communicate the results of what we're seeing and just seeing the reaction to people on, on the, the power the potential power of this thing was really amazing to me so um you know, what's my favorite thing about uh, the technology experience or the technology space? It's seeing new technologies being adopted and actually bearing fruit at the end of the day. I think our listeners can relate to that. Well, let me thank you, Conroy, for your time today. It was a very fun discussion with you and very enlightening as well. You uh, you know your space very, very well. Prasar, any other uh, comments before we sign off? No, I think like it's a great discussion. Like, you know, got to learn a lot of things, like always from Conroy. Like, you know, and it's a great to be a part of this podcast. Thank you, Jeff. We'll see you later. Thanks, thanks for having us. Having me. Thank you. Yeah.